6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Colossians, chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. Well, once again, we're exploring the epistle to the Colossians, and whenever we probe into the Word of God, we do it with prayer. So let's bow our hearts. Father, again, we thank you for the opportunities you put before us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your presence. And we do ask you, Father, through your Holy Spirit, to open our hearts and lives to your word, that we might have what you have here for us impact our lives as we commit this time and ourselves into your hands, indeed, in the name of Yeshua, our Lord, our Savior, our coming King, Jesus Christ in whose name we do pray. Amen. Okay, we are in the Epistle to the Colossians, chapter 3, the first half of that chapter. And uh, in chapters 3 and 4, it's interesting, Paul's typical style is to establish a doctrinal foundation and then build the practical implications of that. That's exactly what he's done here. The first two chapters of this epistle were doctrinal. And now we're going to get into what you could call the practical session. Or as my friend uh, John Leffler always says, the so what section. So what does it all mean? What do we do? So what? What do I do? with? He always feels that if, if a message doesn't have answer the question, so what do I do about it, it's useless. And so that's sort of what we have going on here in chapters 3 and 4. And uh, so they comp- 3 and 4 comprise. We're really st- when I say chapter uh, 3, after verse 4, the first few verses are still a bit of doctrine. But from that point on, it's practical. And uh, is there any sense in which we are on probation? That's the question that is asked here. And if so, what are our responsibilities? You can't earn your salvation. That's all done by Jesus Christ. You can't either earn it or lose it once you have it. But okay, what's our response to that? Well, very, very significantly. So after his lengthy digression in uh, the last part of uh, chapter 2, Paul returns now to apply the truth of verse 12. Buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. So, uh, after all, it goes, excuse me, it does little good if Christians declare and defend the truth, but fail to demonstrate it in their life. So you not only declare it and defend it, you need to demonstrate it. And that's the weak link for most of us. Talk's cheap, Right? There are some Christians who will defend the truth at the drop of a hat, but their personal lives deny the doctrines they profess to to, to love. And uh, people are tired of having extraordinary claims come from people who are living ordinary lives. And uh, so we must keep in mind that the pagan religions of Paul's day said little or nothing about personal morality. That was not a factor. In fact, if anything, immorality was encouraged. And so what a person believed had no effect on the relationship of how he behaved, and no one would condemn a person for his behavior. 
So in this outline then, we are moving from chapter 2, the doctrinal area, down to the first 17 verses of the last two chapters. Um, and uh, it's going to deal with personal purity on the one hand, Christian fellowship subsequently. After that, we'll get into the home, the workplace, and uh, related topics. Three instructions. First four verses. Seek the heavenly. Slay the earthly. Strengthen the Christly. Very skillfully, all start with S, so they must be true. <laughs> I don't know why I have that fixation. It happens in this particular series of materials that lends itself, but in general, I'm always, most of these alliterative things I feel are very contrived, but these seem to work okay. Seek the heavenly, slay the earthly, strengthen the Christly. And uh, so seek the heavenly. We died with Christ. Romans 6 through 8 hammers that thoroughly. That's your reference point. And uh, we live in Christ. Epistle of the Philippians amplifies that. We are raised with Christ. That's going to be in the first verse here. And we are hidden in Christ. That'll be in the third verse. And we are glorified in Christ in the fourth verse. Then from there, we're going to go in verses 5 through 9 about slaying the earthly and then strengthening the Christly, if I can make that a, an adverb or whatever, uh, 10 through 11. So, if ye then be risen with Christ, and that's one of the reasons, by the way, I prefer the garden tomb as an idiom rather than the cross. That's where it's paid, but we, we, we are risen with Christ. The cross didn't finish the story. It makes the story possible. But the good news, it was validated by the resurrection. And so we, we, we serve a living Christ. But if ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. And uh, again, if this is again a first class condition in the conditional, it's a, it assumes the premise, the uh, protesis, for, is true for the sake of argument with any mood or tense in the apodosis. So, therefore, it's what we would say since, okay? There are four different classes that use argumentatively in the Greek, but this is the, the one that we would normally associate with here. And seek those things. The, 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 the verb there, having an urgency and a desire and an ambition is what that is intended to portray. There should be an excitement that goes with seeking spiritual things. And that's one of the things you'll notice among many of our membership and people is their excitement. When Dan and I, uh, every time we might feel down, all we, all we have to do is read the mail from the members. They're so excited. And is that contagious? Is that contagious? Yes, to have a, uh, an excitement that goes with it. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. On things above. Think heaven. When I was in the, an executive, my IBM people gave me a little thing for the desk, you know, think. You know, it was, that was a, one of their trademarks. We ought to make something that looked like this. Think heaven, you know. Right. And uh, one of my friends gave me another one said, you know, uh, outthink. Don't just think, outthink. But anyway. But think heaven. Set your watch on HQ time, headquarter time. What time is it as far as he's concerned? It's interesting, Daniel did that, by the way. You may miss this when you study the book of Daniel. When he was a captive in Babylon, he would pray at the time of the evening oblation. In other words, there was no temple. 
There was no oblation, but it was the time of, as far as he was concerned, it was a time of evening oblation. So even though it was a couple of hundred miles to the east, he'd open his window and he'd pray, and it, it, it was a time for the evening oblation. And so, uh, so he, was, uh, uh, he reckoned his time to Jerusalem, which was a couple of hundred miles to the west. And uh, so in politics, they say, how you stand depends on where you sit, which side of the aisle, you know. Well, where are you seated? You're seated in the heavenlies. That should be your perspective. One of the things my wife and I have discovered, that's why we wrote the book, uh, The Kingdom, Power, and the Glory, is because we discovered some of the discoveries we think we've made about the, the scripture has changed our day-to-day priorities. Because we suddenly realize what the kingdom, the kingdom isn't an abstract thing. It's our destiny. It's what we're being trained to go to. It's as if we're in boot camp. And if you're in boot camp, and you know at the end of your session there, you're going to be shipped to the front someplace, you take your training more seriously, you know? Well, that's where we are. We're in boot camp for heaven. In fact, not heaven as some kind of uh, conceptual abstraction. No, the kingdom from heaven that'll be on the earth. That's why it's a genitive of, of source, not a genitive of apposition in Matthew when he says kingdom of heaven. It's not a synonym for a kingdom of God. That's an all-embracive term. Within that, Matthew's being denotative 33 times. He speaks specifically. The kingdom from heaven. And uh, so it's on the earth. It has a capital. The floor plan of the, uh, the temple is laid out in, in Ezekiel in, in, in incredible detail and so forth. And so uh, once you start getting in, you suddenly realize, hey, it's coming and we're going to have an assignment there of some kind. And that assignment will be derived from our behavior now. Ooh, does that change priorities? And so uh, that's what we're trying to get at here. Think kingdom would be, when you say uh, 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 think heavenlies, that's, that, that's his term from Ephesians, and that's fine. But it's, to me, more tangible to say think kingdom. Because there's a specific kingdom, and it's on the earth. It isn't some concept. In the book of Daniel, chapter 2, there are five kingdoms mentioned. Babylon, Persia, Greece, Roman, two phases. But fifth on a list of five is a kingdom that God is going to set up, destroying the others on the earth. It's a kingdom in that sense. Ooh, it has a king, it has subjects, it has a capital, and so forth. And so, so anyway, this is also a warning against false systems which attempt to rob you of the great unity with Christ in his death and resurrection. That's your unity. That's an organic union with a living Christ. Don't let any of these weird side trips rob you of that. We, in Adam we were fallen, but in Christ we have received new life from him, and therefore we're not to think of ourselves as in any sense on probation. Yes, we're being groomed. Yes, we're being sanctified, but that's not the same thing. You're not on probation. It's a done deal. You are in Christ. And uh, it's important to We do not stand before God on the ground of responsibility. If we did, we'd fail. There are very few mistakes I've missed. If it's up to me, I'll blow it. I'm grateful that I know in whom I've believed and that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. So the responsible man utterly failed to keep his obligations. There was nothing for him but condemnation. But the Lord Jesus Christ has borne that condemnation. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. Praise God. Are you in Christ Jesus? Then celebrate that.
You betcha. Not on things on the earth. You know, it's interesting. Is the world cold, unforgiving, materialistic? The scripture says that you become like that which you worship. If you worship the world, you will become cold, unforgiving, materialistic. That's why you want to worship Christ. Because you become like the things you worship. That's in several places in the Psalms. Things on earth. Anything, any alternative obsession is an idol. And I have to confess something to you. It may do my heart good to confess it publicly. For 30 years, I was in the strategic arena. I was chairman and CEO of four different publicly traded defense contractors. I went to the Naval Academy. When other people were in college, we were passing in review on Warden Field for whoever was visiting Washington that week. After my service career, I was in the intelligence community. I was in think tanks in the RAND environment. And then I was in the uh, defense establishment as a, in a, as a chief executive. 30 years in the strategic arena. I now look back. See, when we were in Boy Scouts, it was God and country. You didn't have to choose between them. But I now look back at the more recent years of that experience, and that which I used to consider patriotism, I now look at as idol worship. That's a painful admission on my part. It's hard for me to let go and realize that that's the way it is. And I could go on, but there's no need. You get the picture. Don't expect the world to understand us. Don't be surprised when you've ex experienced rejection. Cain hated Abel because his own works were unacceptable. The world in its heart of hearts knows that its works are unacceptable. They want to flee accountability. And if you're worshiping God, you're a threat to their own self-conceits. Don't expect them to embrace that. Even the Lord himself said, they hated me without a cause. He says that twice, actually. He said that in John 15. And he said it someplace else that may surprise you. Psalm 69 is one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament because of some other parts of that psalm. But there is part of that psalm that describes his boyhood years in Nazareth when the drunks down the tavern made up dirty songs about he and his mother as, as if he was illegitimate. And it, goes, it, it develops that in the middle part of that psalm. And that's where he also says there, they hated him without a cause. Even then, we know Christ suffered, but we overlook the 30 years that he and his mother suffered Nazareth in a small town, in a culture which abhorred illegitimacy, as if they really... I'm, I was alien to my mother's children. Why not the father's children? Because they don't know who his father is. And so on. You can unravel that if you want to get into it. But... Um, We've, we fail to realize the pain he must have suffered during those tender early years. He suffered the stigma of illegitimacy. Why? So that you and I could have clear title to be a son of God. Whew. Wow. 
Check out Psalm 69. You probably find it very provocative. Moving on, for Paul says, For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. What does he mean? Because you've died in Christ. You're on that cross 2,000 years ago. That's what Romans 6 through 8 will amplify for you. Now, he died for us. That was substitutionary. We have died with him in identification. That's what baptism is about, to identify with him. It's not the washing. It's the identity with him. Many people get that confused. He not only died for sin, bearing its penalty, he died unto sin, breaking its power. Sin no longer has power over you. Our link that bound us to the world and all its purposes has been severed. And we are freed from all necessity to be subject to sin in the flesh. And Romans 5 hammers that for you. If a lot of this is troublesome, I encourage you to get into a serious in-depth study of the book of Romans. The first seven chapters. Because chapter 8 is the dessert after going through the first seven. Ye are dead, it says. You know, there are two deaths. Second death, that speak, speaks of the second death. You realize there's two deaths? And the order of them is important, by the way. The first death is separation of the soul and the body. That's the def biblical definition of death. Separation of the soul from the body. The body will decay. The soul is, 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 is... The separation of the soul from God is the second death. And fortunately, you've got those reversed. Because our second death was taken care of at the cross. Which order is important? Those that are in Christ are not subject to the second death, the scripture tells us. Huh? Your life is hid with Christ. You see, it's hid. Our, uh, our life is in his safekeeping. The whole issue of eternal security is directed at his the security of his keeping it for you. So he has it. Now the question is, is his, is his, his head is pretty high above? Has you ever heard of a man drowning whose head was that high over the water? You know, that's a, a quip that seemed to fit. Anyway, nothing can separate us from the risen Christ. And any time you have some doubts about that, you jump into Romans from chapter, chapter 8. I usually start about verse 28 and there following. And you cannot sit down, no matter how low you are, no matter how gloomy uh, uh, it might seem to you at that moment, sit down and read Romans 8 from verse 28 to the end of that chapter. And then I challenge you not to emerge with a comfort, a smile, and a confidence. It's the most exciting tour de force, uh, in my mind, in the epistles. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, the Christian life is a hidden life as far as the world is concerned. Because the world does not know Christ, they will not understand you. Don't be surprised if you find rejection. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. That confuses a lot of people. How can he come back to the earth in power with us? Only because he gathered us earlier. Amazing how many people have trouble with the concept of the harpazo. Well, by the way, let's, let's be candid. That's the most preposterous doctrine in Christianity. The whole idea of the, the rapture, or the harpazo. 
The only thing it has going for it is that it's unquestionably spelled out in the Scripture. And it may surprise as many of my erstwhile uh, scholars to discover it's mentioned three times in the Old Testament. I should say it's hinted at three times. It's presumably revealed uniquely uh, in the... Anyway. But the point is uh, that unravels the whole picture. And of course it's going to be the biggest shock the planet Earth's ever had. But... uh, When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Wow. Devoutly to be wished, as Hamlet might say. For me to live is Christ, Paul says. And how can we appear uh, appear with him but for a pre-trib rapture? And you can contrast that by going through 1 Thessalonians. On it goes. Okay. Well, this ends, this this fourth verse of chapter 3 ends the doctrinal teaching. Here's where it really shifts into a, a practical thing. But the main point is Christ himself is the antidote to any error. And by the way, any time you have any kind of heresy, put Christ in the right in the middle of it and measure it by that. Let me give you another clue, a little surprise. How many of you reading your Bible come across a passage that confuses you or you don't understand? Anybody doesn't have his hand up, hasn't read his Bible. Obviously, okay. Now, <laughs> let me give you a little trick. Let me, anytime you come to a passage in the Scripture that you don't understand. Take out a journal, just for that purpose, jot down the date, the time, the reference, and try to capture in ink, not in pencil, why it seems to you that that's confusing, why it doesn't make sense, or why it seems to be self-contradictory, or whatever. Try to capture that feeling. Do it in a way that's private. You'll never show this to anybody else, so you can be totally candid with yourself, but put it in ink. Then what you do is go before the Lord with prayer. And say, Lord, you promised that your Holy Spirit would teach us all things. Not most things, all things. And I don't understand Hezekiah chapter 5, or whatever. I'm making that up. Um, Ask him to reveal it to you. Remind him of the promise to do that. Petition him in the name of the Lord Jesus. And watch what happens. It won't necessarily be in the next 10 seconds. But something's going to happen. You'll be reading somewhere else, and suddenly the light will go on. Oh, wow. Now I get it. It might be uh, someplace you're reading. It might be something you overhear on the radio or whatever. It might be a conversation you overhear in a restaurant. It might have nothing to do with this. But somehow, something will be brought across your path that will unlock that concern. Then what I want you to do is go back to that journal. That's why you keep it. Find that page. Put down the date. And how the Lord revealed to you what it really means, and put the explanation in there. See, gee, that, Chuck, that sounds pretty good. Why all the paperwork? I'll tell you why. Because the day will come when you'll be going through the valley of doubt. There'll be times that it just you sometimes think, maybe we've just gotten carried away with it all, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I want you to take your journal and see the footprints of the Holy Spirit as He personally tutored you through your walk with Christ. Now the other trick you can do as you do all that, when you have something you don't understand, put Christ right in the middle of it. You encounter some weird law in the Torah that makes no sense. Put Christ right in the middle of it and see what happens. And I could give you examples, but I'm already going to mess up my timing here, so let's always keep you get the You get the idea. What a gospel we have. It makes nothing of man and everything of Christ. 
Three instructions. Seek the heavenly. We died with Christ. We live in Christ. We are raised with Christ. We're hidden in Christ. We're glorified in Christ. Second, slay the earthly. That's where we're headed. And strengthen the Christly. Paul's not going to focus on the practical holiness that derives from the first two chapters. More than declare and defend the truth, it is important to demonstrate it. Verses 5 through 11, it's going to, it relates to you and I ourselves. And verses 12 to 17, the rest of this session, will be our relationship with others. Ourselves first, then others. Notice the order. We must be right with ourselves before we can be right toward others. Colossians 3.5, mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, the covetousness, which is idolatry. And he goes on. Mortify. The, the, the Greek uh, verb means put to death. Take them to the undertaker. Okay? We are to deal unsparingly with the sins of the flesh. We are to deal unsparingly with the deeds of the flesh. What are these deeds? Well, fornication. The word from which, uh, you know, uh, porn comes from, pornean. Sexual immorality in general, and that's a characteristic of our world, uh, as well as that of the Colossians. And what I preach, First and Second Corinthians, I usually call it First and Second Californians. <laughs> the word Corinthian came to mean fornicator. And any analogy with Hollywood is intentional. Okay. Next one is uncleanness. What does that really mean? Lustful impurity connected with loose living. I'm sure you don't have any of those here in Britain. We'll move on here. Inordinate affection. Pathos is the Greek term, but it's inappropriate or excessive affection. It's appetites that seek opportunities to satisfy themselves. That's translated here, inordinate affection. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Colossians. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-KHOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. 